Our scripture today is Psalm 17, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. For your presence, let my vindic- from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The word of the Lord. We're working through Psalms this summer. Today we're in Psalm 17. And once again, we read another Psalm where David is praying, is singing to God about some conflict that he's in. This keeps happening to David. Does that keep happening to you? Have you had conflict much in your life? Have you found yourself in a difficult situation much? The Psalms are so real. They, they, don't, they, they don't fake it. They're real honest prayers. Conflict is inevitable. The issue is not if you will face conflict, but when. We all experience it. And what I've seen in dealing with my own conflicts and in helping other people deal with theirs are two types of default responses to conflicts. Now, in secular terminology, I'm sure you've heard of the fight or flight concept, right? Well, typically... uh, A natural way that people respond to conflict is they try to fight or they try and fly. They try and flee. Some people want to win when they're faced with conflict. That's their default mode. They just want to win. They want to dominate. They want to overcome. Some people want to run. They want to hide. They want to escape. They want to forget it. They want to deny it. Some people want to attack. Some people want to hide. In a very simple way, those are the two defaults when human beings face conflict. Maybe you you slip into one default pattern or the other. Maybe your family does or your your personal culture, your own culture uh, is more into peace breaking or is more into peace faking. Neither is helpful. 
What I have found is regardless of, you, of people's position, whether they're trying to win in a conflict or whether they're trying to run from a conflict, usually people are trying to protect something. Whether they win, try to win, or whether they try to run, people are trying to protect something that they are afraid of losing. Do you ever run because you were afraid of losing something or someone? Did you ever fight because you were afraid of losing something? Sometimes we experience conflict with people who regard us as their enemies. That's what David is dealing with in Psalm 17. Sometimes you find yourself in conflict with people who not only don't have your best interest in mind, but would actually act and speak in order to hurt you, in order to harm you. For instance, some of you are parents of children or of young children. How do you help your child work through a difficult circumstance with a bully without just trying to win and knock the bully's socks off, without just trying to run and avoid rape all the time? How do you help your children work through difficult situations like that? How do, you, how, how do you help yourself work through difficult situations without just trying to win or without just trying to run away? Well, I think the Bible has a wealth of wisdom for responding to conflict. Even Christians, I don't believe, appreciate the degree to which the Bible addresses healthy ways to respond to conflict. Old Testament and New Testament. In a world where people try to protect their best interests in conflict, the best protection in conflict is desiring God above everything else. And you're going to see that in David's words in Psalm 17. Your best protection when you're faced with conflict is learning how to desire God more than anything and anyone you're trying to protect. And you're going to see that that's David's response to conflict. Today, I'm not going to focus so much on verses 1 through 5, where David appeals to God as a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge. David believes he's done nothing wrong in the circumstance and that God will vindicate him as a true, just judge. If you go on our website and listen to the recording from Psalm 7, that psalm addresses very much that concept and that topic. So I'm going to pass over that today and just focus beginning on verse 6, verses 6 through 15. And I'll just read verses 6 through 9 to, so that we can get a context for it. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. As you read the second half of Psalm 17, you're going to discover that there is a contrast of desires between the godly and the godless. As you watch what David desires and as you read what his enemies desire, you're going to see a stark contrast in what they desire. Let's talk about the desires of the godless. And here's what I mean by the godless, because I mean to be respectful to anybody who's not a Christian, who does not follow the God of the Bible. I want to be respectful. But this is what I mean by the godless. Those who function in life as though God is not present and active in the world. 
That's what I mean by, and I think what David means by, uh, the wicked. Here are the desires of the godless as David understands them. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world. Now listen to this. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. He means their belly, their gut. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. So David identifies his adversaries as, quote, people of the world. People of this life. And he distinguishes people of the world in this way. He says their portion, meaning their reward, is in this life. That's how he describes his enemies. People of the world, and he, and, and he, he, distinguishes, them, he distinguishes them by their desires. They're people who believe that their reward, their greatest treasure, is in this life. And he says basically their involve accumulation and legacy. Accumulating influence and power and wealth and pleasure, the things that mean something to people right now, and then providing a legacy so that the good things that they have and the good things that they've done will be passed on to their descendants. David, on the other hand, talks about a, different, a very different type of desire. He talks about what the godly desire. People like David who function as though God is present and active in the world. He says in verse 15, this is a beautiful conclusion to his prayer. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So whether David survives the conflict he's in or not, whether he wakes up in the morning or whether he doesn't wake up, he says, I will be satisfied with God's face. I will be satisfied with God's likeness. Very similar to what the man Job, who went through a very difficult ordeal, if you think you had it rough, read about Job. Job said in, in the midst of his conflict as he's wrestling with God and he doesn't know why he's enduring what he's enduring because he doesn't think he's sinned. He doesn't think he deserves what he's dealing with. He says this. There's a ray of hope in his complaining. He says in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after, listen to this, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. That was Job's hope. So in contrast to the godless, David's enemies who desire the treasures of this life as their hope and which they pass on to their descendants. In contrast to their desires, David sought God above all other things. He said that's, that was his greatest prize. That's what he wanted more than anything, to see God's face and to enjoy God's presence. That's where David went in conflict. That's what David remembered in his, con in his conflict, that his greatest desire was to be with God and to know God. And he says it's because of God's steadfast love, God's abiding presence. That's what he wanted the most. 
this contrast of desires between the godless and the godly that David talks about is highlighted somewhere else in the Bible. When Jesus preached his sermon on the mountainside, recorded in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, this is what he said. Do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, which we can interpret as the godless, because Jesus was speaking to Jews at the time. But if you follow Jesus, you would just say that Jesus is referring now to anybody who doesn't act and think like the God of the Bible is present and active in the world or in their lives. The Gentiles, Jesus said, seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now, what does this contrast of desires between David and his enemies have to do with our conflicts? It has everything to do with your conflicts. It has everything to do with conflict. It is our different priorities that spark our conflicts. Whether there's a healthy tension or an unhealthy tension that you're thinking of, Often our conflicts arise because we have different desires, because we have different ideas of what is important, of what is necessary, of what is good and right and true. And David is saying that he and his enemies have very different priorities. The primary reason why Jesus people are in conflict with the world is that our most precious desires are very different from the world's. That's why Christ's people are in conflict with the world. We read this earlier from 1 John chapter 3. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, referring to Jesus. A Christian's conflict with the world, with people of the world, is based in these polarized positions of what ultimately is important. The godless say what's ultimately important is their own legacy. Their best interests. Accomplishing what's in their best interests. Preserving and protecting what is in their best interest. The righteous say their best interest. What's most important is knowing their creator. And being with him. And seeing this faith. His face. Being in his presence in this life and seeing his face in the next. The Apostle Paul sheds more light on this contrast of priorities in his letter to the Romans. He says in Romans chapter 8, those who live according to the flesh, think again, living in worldly terms, as David's talking about, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the Spirit of God, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, here's how I want to apply this. Understanding this drastic, this dramatic contrast 
in desires and priorities. This helps the Christian understand the source. We say, why are things going so badly at work? Why are things going so bad in my family and with my relatives? Why are Thanksgiving dinner so difficult? Why am I getting picked on and blamed? Why am I getting ignored and overlooked? Well, in many cases, it's because of this drastic difference in desires of what is, what is ultimately important. Now, I'm talking about honorable conflict. Honorable conflict. Jesus describes honorable conflict, conflict that honors God in this way. In Ma- again, in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, our, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That's honorable conflict. That's getting into conflict as a Christian for good reasons. Because you have the right priorities. Because your priorities are in line with what your creator knows you need and what is important, like what David's talking about, what Jesus has been talking about. I'm not talking about the kind of conflict that rises or flames up because when Christians are immature. Because as a Christian, you can be vain. As a Christian, you can be selfish. Even Christians can be stubborn. So I'm not talking about the kind of conflict that rises or spreads because you're selfish or stubborn or vain. If you're always in conflict, if you're constantly in conflict, but you're a Christian, you're still probably, you're probably the one with the problem. If you're never, if you're a Christian and you are never in conflict, there is probably something wrong with your Christianity. Because if you truly follow Jesus, if you truly desire what the God of the Bible and what David truly desires, then you will inevitably experience conflict with people who care more about the rewards of this life. Whether they're at your work or in your community or in your family. So you have to ask, I would encourage you to ask yourself, what do I desire the most? What do I think about the most? What do I talk about? What do I do? And especially when I'm in conflict, what do I think about the most? How do I speak when I'm in conflict? And how do I act when I'm in conflict? That'll tell you what you desire the most. That'll tell you what is most precious to you. It's tempting to seek the rewards of this life. It is tempting to build up your reputation, isn't it? So people respect you and admire you and remember you when you move away or when you die. It's tempting to seek success. It's it's tempting to seek wealth. It's even tempting to seek influence. Some people don't necessarily want power, but a lot of people want influence. They want to be liked. They want people to ask them, how do I do this? Show me the best way. They, don't want to, they want to be regarded for being smart or wise or helpful. It's tempting to just want pleasure. To just want to do things that make you feel good. It's tempting to just want to relax. I just, sometimes all I can think about is getting to the end of the day or the end of the week or the end of the year so I can finally relax. But then the, the very reason why I'm doing things is to stop doing them so I can relax. <laughs> Which defeats the purpose of helping people. 
If all I wanted help, if I only want to help them so that I could stop helping them and relax, now I'm not really helping them. I'm helping myself. It's tempting to just want relaxation and leisure. To do everything, to make our money, to, to, to plan, to work hard just so that we can relax and enjoy our hobbies. It is also tempting to want solitude just so that we can be alone and be by ourselves and not be bothered. Solitude is good if it's restorative. But if solitude is simply the goal, it's self-serving. It's tempting to want to live this way and to treasure these things. That's what everybody in the world treasures. And you may think that desiring these things is really not a bad thing. What's wrong with desiring these things? Surely you may think you can desire God and still want these things? Can, can we? Can you? What's the inevitable progression of wanting the rewards of this life? According to David, if you read verse 10, he describes his enemies as, this is what he says about them. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. So the progression of desiring the things that the world desires is, in the end, becoming an arrogant, pitiless person who serves yourself and attacks anyone who stands against you. And against what you want. Anyone who threatens what you most desire. And you will fight or you will run to protect what you want the most. In verse 14, David, he describes these folks as men of the world whose reward is in this life. And if the rewards of this life are what you want to any degree, and that becomes your focus then a pitiless, arrogant person who attacks and runs to protect your best interests is what you will become. Beware that God may give you what you want. This is idolatry. When what your heart treasures the most trumps God. And then that treasure rules you. That's what idolatry is. When you want something other than God, and then it rules you. Beware that God may give you what you want. Jesus responds in this way, again in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. This is what Jesus means. You're going to give your heart to what you desire most. So don't give your heart to what you can't keep. There's a reason we're afraid in conflict. is because we want what we can't keep. And we're desperately trying to protect it. Whether we try and run or whether we try and fight. We want and desire most what we can't keep. And that is often the source of our conflicts. It is often the reason why our conflicts grow into a fire that is out of control. It is the source of hate and vengeance and injustice in our world. 
But you can desire what you cannot lose. You can desire the things that you absolutely will not lose by faith. And this is why David in conflict, in severe conflict, was excited about seeing God someday. This is a guy when he was threatened, he started thinking about how he was going to see God. He started thinking about how God was his greatest desire. Is, is, that, <laughs> is that where my mind always goes when I'm in conflict? I'm going to see God someday. Whether I wake up tomorrow or not, whether I get out of this conflict unscathed or whether I come out of this conflict by the skin of my teeth, bruised and injured and shamed, I'm going to see God someday and I'm going to have his presence regardless of what happens tomorrow. David is trusting in God's unfailing love. What does he say in verse seven? He says, wondrously show your steadfast love. Now you've heard David uses this word steadfast love again and again. In some of your Bibles, it says mercy. In some of your Bibles, it says loving kindness. But the Hebrew word was an important word. It meant God's unfailing love. It was a covenant word. It was God's covenant love, which means this is the kind of love that sticks to you, not because of your goodness, but because of his goodness. That's what covenant love is. It's a love that you can't lose because God has that love. He keeps it for you. He's made a promise to love you. And that promise won't be revoked based on how you behave right now. So that even in conflict, David could say, I'm not going to lose God's unfailing love. Because in his covenant, he promised it to my father Abraham and to my ancestors, and he's promised it to me. And the reason you can't lose God's unfailing love and his abiding presence is because you didn't earn it. We don't think that way. We think we get to keep the things we earn. We don't. And you know that. You've lost things that you worked hard for. The reason you get to keep God's unfailing love is because you didn't earn it. Somebody else did. Jesus, as a human being, loved his heavenly father, even though he was God. He loved his heavenly father, God the Father, above all things. Read about Jesus' life. Read about what he said. His greatest devotion, his greatest joy, his identity was wrapped up in knowing his heavenly father. And communing with his heavenly father in the presence of Jesus was so committed, was so desired his heavenly father above all things that his desire for the father drove him to the cross, drove him to his own death. That's why Jesus died. Because he wanted his heavenly father more than anything else. And on the cross, Jesus, for this moment, when he carried my sins and when he carried your sins, at that moment, he was... He was removed from that eternal blessed presence. When he hung on the cross as the greatest sinner who ever lived because he carried our sins. For that, for that terrible moment when the sky darkened and he cried out, my, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cast out of that blessed presence so that you and I don't have to be. And God raised him up from the dead. The Father, through the Spirit, raised Jesus up from the dead. And that allows us to have hope. 
This is why David had hope in the, in the presence of his enemies and in conflict. He looked forward to this. He couldn't fully see it. He believed that God was going to do something amazing. We look back at the cross and at the empty tomb and we are amazed. We have the same faith David did, but we see how God accomplished it. We see how God preserved his unfailing love for David. It's the tomb. It's the cross and the tomb. Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, that gives us assurance and hope in our conflicts. Let me share a few passages of scripture that really flesh this out before I close. Paul in Romans 8 said this, who shall separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? He answered this way, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what David was saying in verse 15. He just couldn't fully express it. He was looking forward to the Messiah. We are looking back on the Messiah. Paul is able to say also in Colossians chapter 3, I love this verse, it changed my life as a young pastor who was afraid of conflict, who could not bear the burden of people in conflict being frustrated with me. And this verse, as a friend spoke it to me, changed my life as an adult who was afraid of people's opinions in conflict. Paul said in Colossians 3, 2 through 4, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You hear familiar tones of David's prayer there. You died, and the life you live is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, who is your life, you'll appear also. So because that is true, don't set your mind on the things that are of earth, people's opinions of you, your success, your reputation, keeping what you've worked hard for and earned. Set your minds on things above. God's unfailing love, forgiveness, reconciliation, the hope of eternal life. Redemption from your conflicts now with people and redemption from your conflict with your creator. Finally, we read this earlier, 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. The best protection in conflict is desiring God above everything else that you're trying to protect. Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred in Ecuador, said this. It was basically, it was a prophetic thing to say. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He was a missionary, and it was because of his love for God that conflict came into 
his life. It was conflict with a primitive tribe that he and his missionary colleagues were trying to reach, and the tribe killed him. He loved God so much that people killed him because he loved God more than anything else. You see, David, David is not banking on the fact that he's going to wake up in the morning. Neither was Jim Elliot. What's interesting is the people who killed him later trusted the God that he loved. Read through Gates of Splendor, written by Jim Elliot's wife. Jim lost his life, but not forever. Jim lost his safety, but not his identity and not his hope. And that's how David's thinking in Psalm 17. Because Jim Elliot, like David, and you, like David, as you live by faith, as you live in Christ, you cannot lose God's unfailing love. So let's seek this treasure that is kept for us in heaven and trust God when our priorities and the world's priorities don't match up. And you're going to find that it's easier for you to manage your conflict. Let's pray. Father, we confess that what we need most in our adversity, especially in our conflicts, what we need most is you, your abiding presence, your unfailing love, a sense that you cannot be taken away from us, regardless of what we face. We confess that we need you. That's what we need, Lord. We need you. So reveal yourself to us as you revealed yourself to David, but more clearly as you revealed yourself through your son. Thank you that Jesus desired you above all things or the cross wouldn't have happened and the the empty tomb wouldn't have happened. So we praise you for him, his unfailing love for you. And in his name, we receive your unfailing love for us and we love you back. Amen.